We're going to do a little session today. I didn't have a lot of time to prepare this, but I was um, thinking of this for quite a while. I just uh, didn't get a chance to work on it until the um, uh, notice came out on Friday that the pastor needed help doing Sunday school and preaching. And this stemmed from pastor's study on the confession of faith. If you want to turn in the confession to chapter 10 for a moment, if you want to look back at the um, back of the hymn book, you can bring that up. I just want to read a little bit out of that. Give me one second here. And it, does, it has to do with uh, of effectual calling. <clears throat> and I want to focus in on the area that got most discussion last time when we went through this. Um, chapter uh, 10, verse, uh, paragraph 3. And it reads this. Infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh then... Uh, who worketh then and where and how he pleases. And this is the part I want to focus in on. So also are all elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. And that caught me and it started me to think about how God helps those who are incapable of hearing the word of God or being visual or audio partakers audible partakers of the word of God. Um, and it, uh, it, it really kind of struck a nerve with me. And when we went over this, I started thinking of different people who might fit this category. And several people came to mind. Uh, one uh, was Christian. Another was a blind student that I knew in high school. And then a third if anybody could probably guess who the third might be, blind and, uh, and deaf, probably the first guess will take it, Helen Keller. Good guess. So uh, I, want to, I want to kind of develop this idea of how God works in the lives of the blind and the deaf, what he says about the blind and the deaf and the lame, and uh, kind of work from that. So the outline is going to be kind of like this. How does God reach those who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word? We are not to endanger the deaf and the blind. And the darkness we live in, examples of Helen Keller's world, physical awakening, spiritual awakening, the seeing hand, and optimism. Those are, those are kind of the topics. And we're going to have to rush through these. Like I said, I didn't have a whole lot of time to develop it, but I think we can get through this rather quickly. So before we actually begin, we're going to do a little exercise, and we're going to come back to it. And the exercise is simply this. Um, Sarah, if you could go and turn off the lights in the back of the room for me, that'd be great, and sit down. And then I want all of you to close your eyes, and I'm going to give you something, and I want you to physically feel it, and I want you to 
to experience it only by sight. And you're on the honor system here, so don't look at it, but just, just feel it and look at it. And I'll tell you what the general thing is, kind of, and you'll feel, figure this out. It's a writing instrument, but I want you to feel it, and I want you to get a grasp of what, it's, what it looks like through the feel of your hand, all right? So everybody close their eyes. All right, one for you, one for you, one for you, one for you, one for you. Okay, there you go, there you go, there you go. And there you go. So I'm going to give you about three or four minutes. <laughs> I want you to feel what it is kind of explore it inside and out the best you can with your hands, all right? So the idea is you want to get a visual picture of this through only feeling it and touching it and examining it with your hands. Now, of course, you have the ability to hear, but you do not have the ability to see at this point. So I want you to examine it. Then later on, I want you to, to write a description about it, but I want you to write a description of it. Now, the color is not green, but I want you to describe it as being green, okay? All right, if you are done examining the specimen that I passed out, just raise your hand so I know when everybody's done. Huh? Oh, I'm sorry. I miss it. All right, missed you. Right. You get an extra couple of minutes. Okay. Sorry, Lois. That means everybody should sit on the other side of the room. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm going to come around to this side of the room, and you can just... Actually, you know what? I'm not going to collect them. I want to just put it on the side, uh, under your either in your pocket or on the side of your leg or sit on it or something, just so you can't see it later on. All right, okay, so, all right, um, yeah, if you could turn the lights back on. I wanted you to do it in darkness to kind of get a sense of the darkness of it, okay? Okay, so, how does God reach those who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word of God. And there's two things that he can do. Actually, there's probably there's more, there's three things, actually. I didn't write the third one down. He can do nothing. Or he can heal them. Or he can um, reach past their disability. Those, those are the three things that I've come up with. Maybe you've got more. If you do, raise your hand. We'll be willing to entertain them. But I, those were the three that I could think of. So I wanted to explore some of these before we go into some other material. How can God reach those with disabilities? And he can heal them. In Matthew uh, 15.30, we read this. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, 
maimed, and many others, and cast them at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So we see the healing power of Christ in his ministry. So we know, because Jesus is the Son of God, he is God, he's also man, but he has the power and the ability to heal. So we know, just by inference, that God himself has the power and the ability to heal. So we see that here. And then we also see in Matthew 15, 31, insomuch that the multitude wandered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. So one of the things that happens is God heals these people. Everybody around the area sees that Jesus is healing the blind, the dumb, those who can't speak. He's also healing the deaf. He's healing leprosy. He's even bringing people back from the dead. So you see the healing process that Jesus uses so that his name might be glorified. Now he, and, and also to current, confirm who he is. That's one of the promises that we see. And then in Matthew 21, 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So he did not think it unrighteous to heal somebody in the temple. He felt it was perfectly right. It was good. He was doing the work of God the Father by healing people in the temple. And they were coming to him, and he was healing them. So we see that this is one of the things that Jesus can do. He can reach through the disability or whatever it happens to be that is impeding us from coming to Christ through healing. Now, does he do that today? Not, not generally speaking. I mean, is there cases of it? Maybe. I don't know of any specific ones, but other than a healing session in a charismatic church, but I don't take a lot of credit in that. But, um, but we do know through Scripture that Jesus does heal. He can reach out, he can touch somebody, and he can heal them. And he doesn't even have to touch them. We know that he healed others at a distance. We've seen that in scripture as well. So distance is not the limiting factor for Jesus healing somebody. And we see that it is by faith that these people are healed. He, they are brought to Jesus, he heals them, and, and we see that it was, in many cases it was by faith. Remember the woman with the issue of blood was healed because she believed. If I could only touch the hem of his garment. So we see these things. And then he can reach past their infirmities in order to bolster the people who have these infirmities. And to, to allow them to live with the infirmity, but in the hope and love of God. And we see that um, in other sections. Now, I just want to preface this before I go on. When Pastor went through this um, passage, I, I had immediately thought of the passage in Deuteronomy. And uh, we're going to get to that in just a minute. But there were some other passages, and actually Ken Harris touched on these passages as I was thinking about this topic. So he kind of stole my thunder a little bit on that. But, but um, you know, we're, we'll continue to go through it. But I thought it was an interesting coincidence that he was talking about those same passages that I was thinking about, but in a different context. And uh, so he can reach past... Uh, the infirmities of those who um, 
are afflicted. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. And least I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord three times, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, and persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. So we see here the Apostle Paul desires that he be healed from his infirmity, that he might be a better useful servant for the cause of Christ. But what happens? God denies his request. So there are times when God uses the healing power that he has for the purpose of, of verifying who he is and to, to bring glory to himself. And there are times when he refuses to use his power and healing ability, and he forces the, the person with the infirmity to rest upon his grace, his mercy, and his love in order to work through these things that they might more fully uh, follow Christ for whatever reasons. Now, in this particular case, uh, Paul was therefore, um, he had to therefore uh, endure the infirmity, whatever it was, and he was, he was uh, forced to preach the gospel with whatever infirmity it was. We're, we're never told exactly what it is. And then in Isaiah 29:18, And in that day shall the deaf hear, and the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind, shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. So he's using a passage here, I'm using a passage here rather, that shows us that the deaf, will, the deaf will hear and the blind will see. And I want, I'm not going to fully explain this yet. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. Um, and then in Isaiah 35.5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and stream, streams in the desert. So we're seeing here, and a picture of blind men, deaf men, lame men being healed. Now, it, it's also uh, pointing towards the time of Christ, but, it, but I think it signifies more than that as well. Because we all are um, capable of being blind, deaf, and dumb, aren't we? Even though we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, and now... God also gives a warning about how we are to treat the deaf, dumb, blind, and lame. And he does it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 14. He says this, Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shalt fear thy God. I am the Lord. Now that's an interesting appendage he adds to the end of that verse, isn't it? And he's obviously emphasizing something. He says, But you shall, but, um, but shalt fear thy God, I am the Lord. And why do you think he's adding that to the end of that verse? What, what, do, you think, what do you think he means by 
adding that to the end. Any ideas? Well, I think it's this. I, I think it's that we might remember who we were before we come to faith in God. When we were blind, we were dumb, and we were deaf. We were of the same mind. We were spiritually blind, we were spiritually deaf, and we were spiritually lame. And as a result of that, I think there's a parallel here that not only is he talking about the physical people, that we, that we do not inhibit them because we don't want to be the cause for which they don't come to Christ or come to faith. We want to be the, the person who helps them come to faith. And I think here we're seeing that, that as, as we look at this idea of, of uh, cursing the deaf, the, the, the dumb, and the blind, and putting a stumbling block before them, when you think of a, the stumbling block, you think of, all right, here's a blind man. Let's play a joke on him. Let's put this log or this block in front of him and watch him trip, and we're all going to have a good laugh. Well, God says, don't do that. Don't do it physically, and don't do it mentally. Don't do it, you know, in, in whatever sense it is, whatever sense you can come up with, don't do it. We're not to treat people like that. We're to treat them with respect. We're to treat them with, with honor. Even those who we know cannot um, sustain themselves, that they need help, we are to help them and uphold them. And I think that's a, a good lesson to learn here on this whole thing. Now, I do want to get to this passage in Exodus. If you want to turn there for a minute, Exodus chapter 4. We're just going to read 1 through 14 for a minute. And this kind of hones in on this idea, develops it a little bit. All right, so we're going to read... Um, Verses 1 through 17. Now, only a portion of this is really what I want to get to, but I do want to read the whole thing. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is, in, what is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught, it by, and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back in your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he had took it out, behold, it was restored like the flesh, like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water, and you shall take from the uh, and that you shall take from the Nile and will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in past or, or since you have spoken to your servant, but I, have, I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who made 
And here's our verse. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. The, danger, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will teach, and I will be, I'm sorry, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you, to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand his staff, with which you shall do the signs. So we see here this idea. Moses is trying to back out of the responsibility that God's about ready to give him. He says, I'm not an eloquent man. What, what am I to do? He says, well, who do you think made the mute, the deaf, and the blind? He says, I made. I'm the one responsible for them. Do you not think that I can give you words to speak? Are you afraid that you're not going to be eloquent enough to bring forth my word when I will give you the words to speak at the due time? And so Moses is, is being forced into doing this position. It's, it's almost like Jonah in a way. He, he's trying to find a way to get out of the responsibility. I, I mean, it appears that way to some degree. So... But the point is, is that God can make us willing. He can reach through our infirmities for the purpose of doing his will. And we're not to shy back from doing his will because we, we, we think we have some infirmity that will keep us from saying it right. In, the due, in due time and at the right time, God will bring to you the words that are necessary to do what his will is. And we're not to shy away from that. And I think that's an important aspect that we have to remember as we go through our Christian life. And then in John 9, we read this. Um, uh, why God made us the way we are. John 9, 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now we see here that the immediate response of the disciples when they saw this blind man, they wanted to know who sinned. And, and Jesus makes it very clear, none of them sinned. The sin was not the reason for this man's blindness, either through his sin or through the parent's sin. God made this man for the purpose of showing who he was. And God makes all, the deaf, the dumb, the blind, the maimed, the lame, for the purpose of showing who he is. He made them. We might think that it was a, a genetic accident that somebody was made in a particular way. But that's not true. 
God's glory is brought forth even through those who have disabilities and, and inabilities. And we see that in the scriptures. And we are to take special care for those people because those people are the, are the ones that God uses to show his glory. He can use them more than he can use you. If God can make a donkey speak, he can make his own glory come forth through reaching through the infirmities of others. And I think that's important to remember. Many times I think we, we think a little too lightly of those types of things, but I think it's a good example. Now, I want to get back to this idea that I said I was going to get back to, the darkness we live in. When you think of the darkness we live in, in today's world we can see this darkness. It surrounds us. We can see the spiritual darkness that we live in today. And we, in essence, those who, those who are not physically blind, deaf, dumb, and lame, they are spiritually blind, deaf, dumb, and lame. And what do we have that helps those in that darkness? First, we have the saving grace of God. God has given us his saving grace. He calls out his people. His grace is poured out upon his people. And he brings them to the saving knowledge of who he is. And it doesn't matter whether you've got an infirmity or whether you have no infirmity. And he has an infinite reach. God's reach is infinite in who he touches and how he touches them. And his mercy is infinite as well. We don't have to doubt the, the, the mercies of God. And God is, is, is pleased to bring men out of darkness and into light. And I think God uses the analogies of the disabled to remind us of our state before him, as I mentioned before. So those are kind of the scriptural references I wanted to back up the next part. Now... What I want you to do is take out a piece of paper for a moment and just briefly write down your exploration of whatever the writing tool was. All right, try to remember what it was. Now, remember I told you just the color is green, and I'm doing that for a purpose, even though it may not be green, but I want you to, to write down what you felt about that piece of or that writing instrument. And we're going to explore that in just a few minutes. And while you're doing that, I'm going to pull out some additional reading. And there were three things, or several things that came up in my study of Helen Keller. And I wanted to use... Um, Examples of Helen Keller's world, which you're doing now, her physical awakening, her spiritual awakening, her seeing hands, and her optimism. And I think those are important aspects of, of her world. <clears throat> right, just uh, when, you, when you think you've, you're done, just raise your hand so I know when to go on. Okay. Give everybody a few more minutes. Everybody done? <laughs> 
about. And you can keep writing on it. I won't. I won't. Uh, I'm going to keep going on, but keep writing and try to listen at the same time. All right. So um, I'm going to read from this book here. Uh, after Pastor had given the the lesson on chapter 10, and I was moved by that, I went out and ordered three books, and two of the books I have here with me. This one is entitled Helen Keller, Light in My Darkness. And that is this book. And, and you're all welcome to, to borrow these at some point. Ruth and I are reading through this one, The World I Live In, An Optimism by Helen Keller. These are authored, uh, authored by Helen Keller. One, um, one is, was helped with uh, some of the biography uh, by another author, but she was, in, in essence, the author of it. Um, so... Physical Awakening. I want you to listen to her description. This is her description of her life as somebody who is blind and deaf. And I thought it was rather moving. For nearly six years, I had no concept whatsoever of nature or mind or death or God. I literally thought with my body. Without a single exception, my memories of that time are tactile. I know I was impelled like an, like an animal to seek food and warmth. I remember crying, but not the grief that caused the tears. I kicked, and because I recall it physically, I know I was angry. I imitated those about me when I made signs for things I wanted to eat or helped to find eggs in my mother's farmyard. But there is no one... It is not one spark of emotion or rational thought in these distinct yet corporal memories. I was like an unconscious clod of earth. There was nothing in me except the instinct to eat and drink and sleep. My days were a blank without past, without present, and without future, without hope or anticipation, without interest or joy. And then uh, she gives a quote. It was nigh night, it was not day. Oh, it was not night, it was not day. By vacancy, absorbing space, and fixedness without a place. There was no stars, no earth, no time, no check, no change, no good, no crime. And there was a quote from Lord Baron, the prisoner of Chilean. And then she goes on, Then suddenly I knew not how or where or when my brain felt the impact of another mind. And I awoke to language, to knowledge, to love to the unusual concepts of nature, good and evil, I was actually lifted from nothingness to human life. Can you imagine that? That, that was her world. She was in darkness. She had no ability to understand the outside world. My teacher, now she, she got a teacher, I think when she was six years old. My teacher, Ann Mansfield Sullivan, had been with me nearly a month. And she had taught me the names of a number of objects. She put them into my hand, spelled their names on her fingers, and helped me to form the letters. But I had not the faintest idea what I was doing. I do not know what I thought. I have only a tactile memory of my fingers going through those motions and changing from one position to another. One day she handed me a cup and spelled the word. Then she poured some liquid into the cup and formed the letters W-A-T-E-R. She says I looked puzzled and persisted in confusing, that I persisted in confusing the two words, spelling cup for water and water for cup. Finally, I, 
became angry because Miss Sullivan kept repeating the words over and over again. In despair, she led me out to the ivy-covered pump house and made me hold the cup under the spout while she pumped. <coughs> Excuse me. I stood still. My, um, oh, I'm sorry. With her other hand, she spelled W-A-T-E-R emphatically. I stood still, my whole body's attention fixed on the no motions of her fingers as the cool stream flowed over my hand. All at once, there was a strange stir within me, a misty consciousness, a sense of something remembered. It was as if I had come back to life after being dead. I understood that what my teacher was doing with her fingers meant that the cold something that was rushing over my hand was water, and that it was possible for me to communicate with other people by using these hand signs. It was a wonderful day, never to be forgotten. Thoughts that ran forward and backward came to me quickly, thoughts that seemed to start in my brain and spread all over me. Now I see it with my mental awakening. I think it was an experience somewhat in the nature of revelation. I showed immediately in many ways that a great change had taken place in me. I wanted to learn the name of every object I touched, and before night I, was, I had mastered 30 words. Nothingness was blotted out. I felt joyous, strong, equal to my limitations. Delicious sensations rippled through me and sweet strange things were locked up in my heart, began to sing. When the sun of consciousness first shone upon me, behold, a miracle, the stock of my young life that had perished, now steeped in the waters of knowledge, grew again, budded again, was sweet again with the blossoms of childhood. Down in the depths of my being I cried, it is good to be alive. I held out two trembling hands to life, and in vain would silence, uh, and in vain would silence impose dumbness upon me henceforth. Uh, the first revelation was worth all those years I had spent in dark, soundless imprisonment. The word "water" dropped into my mind like a sun in a frozen winter world. The world to which I awoke was still mysterious, but there were, there were hope and love and God in it, and nothing else mattered. It is not possible that our entrance into heaven may be like this experience of mine. Isn't this wonderful? It's just amazing how she writes this. You know, somebody who's, who's come to the knowledge of what happened to her as a little girl, she's older now, so... Everything's not as clear as it once was, but it's clear that God intervened in her life in a real and meaningful way. The next section is, I inquired about God. As a little child, I naturally wanted to know who made everything in the world, and I was told that nature, they called it Mother Nature, had made earth and sky and water and all the living creatures. This satisfied me for a time, and I was happy among the rose trees of my mother's garden or on the bank of a river, or out in a daisy-covered field, where my teacher told the Arabian Nights tales about seeds and flowers, birds and insects, and the fishes in the river. Like other children, I believed that every object I touched was alive 
and self-conscious, and I supposed we were all Mother Nature's children. But as I grew older, I began to reason about the parts of nature I could touch. Obviously, I, I am using mature words and the ideas of later years to make intelligent, intelligible the groping, half-formed, ever-shifting impressions of childhood. I noticed a difference between the human, the way hu uh, human beings did their work and the way the wonders of nature were wrought. And I saw the puppies, flowers, stones, babies, and thunderstorms were not just put together or as my mother mixed her hotcakes. There was an order and a sequence of things in the field and woods that puzzled me. And at the same time, there was a confusion in the elements which at times terrified me. The wanton destruction of the beautiful and the ugly, the useful and the obnoxious, the righteous and the wicked, by earthquake or flood or tornado, I could not understand. How could such a blind mass of irresponsible forces create a, and keep things alive, always renewing what was destroyed, always keeping an unfailing succession of spring, summer, autumn, and winter, seed time and harvest, day and night, tides and, gen and generations of men? Somehow I sensed that nature was no more, no more concerned about me or those I loved than with a twig or a fly. This awoke in me something akin to resentment, the fine innuendo by which the soul makes its enormous claim and declares that it has a prerogative of control over the course of events and things. Turning away from nature, I inquired about God, and again I was baffled. Friends tried to tell me that God was the creator, and that he was everywhere, and he knew all, thing, all, all the needs, joys, and sorrows of every human life, and that nothing happened without his foreknowledge and providence. Some with a generous dis disposition said God was merciful to all and caused the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. I was drawn irresistibly to such a glorious, lovable being, and I longed really to understand something about him. So you can see her spiritual awakening is coming. It's not there yet, but she's, she's seriously looking to find out who God is and how, how God, um, how God is, is working his universe. And she's very curious about it. One day I asked my teacher why people could not see God, and I remember her answer. The human body we live in is a veil that prevents us from seeing him. She illustrates this with a screen. She made me stand on one side of it, and she stood on the other side. We were quite hidden from each other. She could not see me, and I could not touch her. Yet by little signs, I knew she was there, only separated from me by that veil of Japanese paper. Soon afterwards, we visited Boston, and because I persisted in asking questions about God and Jesus, why did they kill him? Why does God make some people good and others bad? Why must we all die? Miss Sullivan took me to see Philip Brooks. Miss Sullivan was not a believer, and it does clarify that later, but, but uh, she couldn't answer her questions. The gifted preacher and rector at Trinity Church, she felt that if anyone could answer my questions in a simple, beautiful way, he could. Her intuition did not fail her. The great man understood the heart of a child, and he took me on his knee and told me in the simplest language how God loved me and every one of his children. He made God seem so real to me. Oh, I said, oh yes, I know him. I had just forgotten his name. Bishop Brooks told me that the wonderful story of Jesus and my eyes filled with tears and my heart beat with love for the gentle, 
Nazarene who restored sight to the blind and speech to the mute and healed the sick, fed the hungry, and turned sorrow into joy. Now here she's starting to understand the hope of God, the hope that we have in believing in God. Her, she's, she's starting to get that first callings of who God is. Indeed, I felt that the Lord's arms were about the whole world as Mr. Brooks' arms were clasping me in pitying tenderness. After that visit, my knowledge of the, of the character and words of Christ grew day by day. I felt more and more his life deepening down into me, and I found more and more to be glad in the world. And I'm going to skip the rest, and I want to go on to this, the spiritual awakening aspect of this, which I think is pretty nice. And, it's, uh, and she has a uh, couple sections here. I had been sitting quietly in the library for half an hour. I turned to my teacher and said, such a strange thing has happened. I have been far away all this time, and I haven't left the room. We've all had that experience by reading, haven't we? What do you mean, Helen? She asked, surprised. Why? I cried. I have been in Athens. Scarcely were the words out of my mouth when a bright, amazing realization seemed to catch my mind and it set it ablaze. I perceived the realness of my soul and its sheer independence of all conditions of place and body. It was clear to me that it was because I was a spirit, I had, I was a spirit that I had so vivid, vividly seen, and she says that in quotes, and felt the place thousands of miles away. Space was nothing to spirit, and that new consciousness shown to the presence of God, who was a spirit everywhere at once, the creator dwelling in all the universe simultaneously. The fact that my, my small soul could reach out over continents and seas to Greece, despite a blind, deaf, and stumbling body, sent another exulting emotion rushing over me. I had broken through my limitations and found in the sense of touch and eye, I could read the thoughts of wise men and women, thoughts that had for ages survived their mortal life and could possess them as part of myself. So she can vicariously live through the writings of other men. She's, she's now been, she's escaped the physical boundaries of her own body, and she's able to take on the sense of, of the rest of the world through the writings of other men. And it set her free. And she realizes her soul now is not the same as her body. She's come to that realization. It's a real awakening for her. If, if this were true, how much more could God, the un, un, uh the uncircumscribed spirit canceled the harms of nature, accident, pain, destruction, and reach out to his children. Deafness and blindness then were of no real account. They were to be re regulated in the outer circle of my life. Of course, I did not sense any such process with my child mind, but I did know that I, the real, the real I, could leave the library and visit any place I wanted to mentally and I was happy. That was the little seed from which grew my interest in spiritual subjects. It's really amazing that God reaches through her disabilities and opens up the world to her in ways that we could never have done. And it was through just a little bit of teaching and patience from her teacher that that door was opened. And the world became a new place to her. You know, and 
as you read through it, you just read in, in amazement sometimes. Now, she met a couple people. I'm not going to go through that. Um, there was a man named John, John Hitz. He was actually a um, Swiss diplomat in Washington, D.C. And he heard of her, and they met. And I'll just summarize really quickly. They became very good friends, and they, they corresponded regularly. And he learned Braille in order to help her. And um, if you read the book, you'll understand who he is. A big influence in her life. But I do want to come across this other thing. Now, she does mention this person, and maybe some of you might have heard of him or not, but um, it was a big influence in her life, a person by the name of uh, Emmanuel Swedenborg. He was uh, from Sweden. And he was a, a Sweden intellectual, Swedish intellectual. And he, he was a, um, an engineer, a scientist. And he left his callings. He, he, um, he had an experience, a spiritual experience as well. And he wrote extensively about it. And uh, she, she um, read many of his works and was influenced by them. And I thought it was kind of important just to kind of give you an idea of who he is. He says, um, he wrote a book called Heaven and Hell. And in our many conversation, Mr. Hintz came to realize fully my hunger for literature on, sub on subjects that especially interested me. His own deafness had enabled him to see the distorted angle of my thoughts with regard to the world of the senses. He told me that if I could only try to put myself in the place of those with sight and hearing and imagine their impressions of things, they could unite their senses with mine more and more, and thus wonderfully increased my enjoyment of the outer world. He showed me how I could find a key to their life and give them a chance to explore my own with understanding. He put in, in my hands a copy of Emanuel Swedenborg's Heaven and Hell and in, uh, in raised letters in Braille. He said he knew what I would, uh, would not understand much of it at first, but it was fine exercise for, for my mind, and it would satisfy me with likeness, with a likeness of a God as lovable as the one in my heart. So I'll leave that there. And then I'm going to go on to this other section right here. Um, my religion. I grew to womanhood and as an un unaccountable as the uh, Polish-born novelist Joseph Conrad found in English the literature of his choice, I took more and more to the teaching of the, the church of my religion. I cannot explain it any better than anyone else. I have many times tried to recall the feelings that led me to Swedenborg's interpretation of Christianity rather than my father's Presbyterianism, but I can find no satisfactory answer. It was with me as it was with Conrad when an irresistible impulse urged him to go to sea. Like him, I took a standing jump out of my associations and traditions, and the rest is what I have grown to be. And she goes on to explain how that has helped her. So that, is, that was the, the physical awakening of Helen Keller. I mean, it was just a brief description. And also the beginning of her spiritual awakening. And it shows us how God reaches into her soul and helps her uh, to understand what, when she cannot um, see and cannot hear. The teacher that she had uh, helped her to break through this 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 barrier that was keeping her from the outside world. All right, now, 
Um, before I, I talk about this next part, I want you to take your writings, and uh, if some of you would just volunteer for a minute and read yours for a moment, and then we're going to read this. Anybody want to read theirs? Or you want me to read it for you? Come on, don't be shy. Adam? And what color is the pencil? Okay. And what is it, what is it physically? Red. It's red. So in your mind, you have the idea of green. And and what the purpose of this was to show you that Helen Keller, though she had no concept of color, she could relate color in her life. All right. If someone told her she trusted somebody to say if it was a green pencil, she took their word for it. She had no choice. It's green. So the idea was is that she was able to capture the essence of color without ever seeing color just based on the description. She knew that there were certain colors. She didn't know what they looked like, but she could distinguish a color by its name. She couldn't feel the color. She couldn't touch the color. She couldn't, she couldn't hear the color. Uh, but all of the senses were blocked out, so she was dependent upon others to give accurate descriptions of the world around her. And that's why I, I said, whatever it is you're writing about, it's, it's green. Anybody else? Uh, let's get one more. Somebody else? Bruce? And the color, of course, is green. And what color is it? Gold. So here, here you see again, it, your dependence was upon me telling you that it was green. And I wasn't trying to fool you, but I wanted you to enter into the, the kind of trust that Helen had to have with people, and they had to be honest with her. And that's, that's part of the awakening process that she had. Okay, we'll leave it at that. And I want to read just a small, we're almost done here, we, we've got a few more minutes. I wanted to read to you something to deal that deals with touching, which is why I met, let you go through this exercise. And she says, uh, this is some essays that she wrote while she was in college. And she says, I have not touched my dog. He was rolling on, I have just touched my dog. He was rolling on the grass with pleasure in every muscle and limb. I wanted to catch a picture of him with my fingers. And I touched him as lightly as I could, cobwebs, but lo, his fat body revolved, stiffened and solidified in an upright position, and his tongue gave my hand a lick. He pressed close to me as if he were fain to crowd himself into my hand. He loved it when his, uh, with his tail and with his paws and with his tongue. If he could speak, I believe, he would say with me that paradise is attained by touch. For in touch, in all love and intelligence, for in touch is all love and intelligence. A small incident started me on a chant about hands, and if my chant is fortunate, I have to thank my dog star. In any case, it is pleasant to have something to talk about that no one else has monopolized. You can see she's got a sense of humor as well. It is like making a new path in the trackless woods, blazing the trail where no foot has pressed it before. 
I am glad to take you by the hand and lead you along an untrodden way unto a world where the hand is supreme. But at the very outset, we encounter a difficulty. You are so accustomed to light, I fear you will stumble when I try to guide you through the land of darkness and silence. The blind are not supposed to be the best of guides. Still, though, I cannot warrant not to lose you. I promise that you shall not be led into fire or water or fall into a deep pit. And she goes on, my hand is to me what your hearing and sight together are to you. In large measures, we travel the same highways, read the same books, and speak the same language. But yet, our experiences are different. All my comings and goings turn on the hand as, as a pivot. It is the hand that binds me to the world of men and women. The hand is my feeler with which I reach through isolation and darkness and seize every pleasure, every activity that my fingers encounter. With the dropping of a little word from another's hand to mine, slight flutters and the fingers began the intelligence, the joy, the fullness of my life. Like Job, I feel as if a hand had made me, made me, fashioned me together round about and molded my very soul. In all my experiences, though, I am curious of a hand. Whatever moves me, whatever thrills me, is as a hand that touches me in the dark, and that touch is my reality. You may well, might as well say that the sight which makes you glad or blow or a blow which brings the stinging tears to your eyes is unreal to say that those impressions are unreal, which I have accumulated by means of touch. The delicate tremble of the butterfly's wings in my hand, the soft petals of violets curling to the cool folds of their leaves, or lifting sweetly out of the meadow's grass, the clear, firm outline of a face and limb, the smooth arch of a horse's neck, and the velvety touch of his nose, all these and a thousand result combinations which take shape in my mind, constitute my world through touch. You see how she, and there's more, but we're running out of time. But I was trying to get you to the place where she, her entire world was opened up to her through touch. And she realizes that it was through touching that she was able to get a grasp of the world. Now she couldn't see all the objects that we see and be able to identify them and put them all in place. But she could go up to a, an object and touch it and feel it and, and get a sense of what it was. And, and that's what she used, and that's what God used to help her and it, through her, her time on this earth. And we see that God reached through her infirmities and opened her mind to the things above. And uh, it was through touch that all that was made possible, through reading, through learning, and all of the things associated with that. And I just thought, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I really rushed through this. I wish I could have had more time to develop it and to, to do more. But, but uh, I thought it was an interesting idea of how we view those with infirmities, how we, view, how we view those who God has made in his own image with, with, um, with, with handicaps and disabilities and infirmities. And I think it was eye-opening to me how God could reach through to a person by simply using touch as a means of, of, of coming into someone's life and bringing them the realization of who he was. So let's pray and ask for God's help.